Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Thank you for listening and Bwiti Binafi. Yeah. Now, Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and those who are othered and the victims. Because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. What? And these crimes, yeah, you're not going to believe this. They rarely get any public attention because the news is racist, allegedly. Not during my Black History Month. <laughs> And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. Now, she's one of the good ones. I I have to interject here, Beth, because it occurred to me that you didn't realize that I say this because I've heard white parents say that about me and my siblings. Um, Is uh, a racist thing. And I'm just flipping it. Flipping it. Okay. Flipping it it and reversing it. And (laughs) only coming from a place of love. In case, obviously, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And we are not journalists, investigators, or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. All right, so who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Milton Johnson, a.k.a. the weekend murderer who killed at least five people over three months in Will County, Illinois, during the summer of 1983. But he is suspected in a total of 14 murders. All right, but before we get into it, how you doing? I'm all right. So I, I kind of feel like a broken record every week. I'm all right. <laughs> but I got nothing really going on in my life right now except work. And, <laughs> you that's know, okay. like that's good or bad. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why you you said broken record. And my favorite part of that 50 Cent song, we be up in the club, bottle full of bub. And there's a part where he goes, I'm all right. And that's what I think of when you say it every time. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Uh, and that's good. Uh, well, I'm glad you're doing all right, friend. Uh, Thank you. There's a lot going on in the world. And there is. Yeah. For those of us who are still pushing forward and showing up for ourselves and the things and people we have to show up for, that is 100% in my book. Hall of yeah. Fame. 
but uh, oh lord, this time of year is the suckiest, I think, because it's still cold outside. Right. You know, Mother Nature fooled us with like a couple seventy degree days. Yeah. Um, but these then past two days, it, I had to ripped it away. Ripped it away. I had to scrape the ice off my car. Ugh. Taxes are due. Life is a mess. But. Uh, other than that, I'm good. It is good to be old, gifted, and black. <laughs> so we are. Right. All right. Well, it's time to get into some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. All right. What's in the bag, Bev? Well, I wanted to say thank you to Mia for your email. Yes, thank she, you. This was, it was fascinating. She actually knew Emmanuel Level Webb who we covered in episode 107. Oh, and yeah. Wow. She said he taught her how to use nunchucks. <laughs> Holy fuck. Oh, yeah. my God. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah. Wow, Mia. So Shout thank out to you, you, Mia. Yes, yeah. thank you. Uh... And also thank you to Catherine, who set us straight on buffalo mozzarella. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, so she said the vast majority of mozzarella, at least in the U.S., is made from cow's milk. But mozzarella di bufala is a fresh mozzarella cheese made from the milk of Italian water buffaloes. And she <gasps> recommends checking it out at least once. Whoa, I didn't even know water buffaloes were real. I thought, yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know, when you get out of the shower naked, <laughs> nobody's, oh. ever said it. nobody's ever been like, no. hey, do you got an extra water buffalo? No, no, never heard okay. that one. Yeah, but okay. yeah, they're real. Yep. <laughs> they're real. And so is the mo- mozzarella in your face, Beth. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you so much, Catherine. For the validation, because I really needed it. Um, (laughs) Now we're going to take a quick break and get back into the story when we come back. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6000 cash, give us each 3000 we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. We're back! 
Remind us, Beth, who is our subject again? Our subject is Milton Johnson, who was convicted and sentenced to death twice for killing five people, but he's suspected of committing nine other murders as well. Too bad you can't sentence somebody to hell. Anyway, (laughs) let's get into some stats. What sound effect do I use for that? No. Uh, I forgot. Sorry. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. So Milton Johnson has uh, numerous AKAs, including the Morning Murderer, the Weekend Murderer, Murderer, and the Weekend the, the Weekend Slayer. Wow. Uh, at the time of his arrest, Johnson was five foot nine and he weighed over two hundred pounds. Um, he was a murderer, a thief. He shot. He stabbed. Um, he raped and uh, beat uh, people. He had many victims. Some of them survived, though. Um, and as Beth said, he's suspected of killing at least 10 people. I think you said 14. 14, he's yeah. Convicted of five murders, I believe. And the victims that we know of rest in power to those that lost in their lives and love and light to those survivors um, left, uh, the ones who survived his attacks and also those left in the wake of the siege, in especially in the community. Yeah. And this all happened over a several month period in a summer, one summer of 1983. Ronald Reagan was president. Life was really great if you were wealthy, straight, and white. But pretty awful if you were poor, black, brown, or LGBTQ. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, hundreds of thousands of uh, LGBTQ folks died of AIDS. And Reagan did say a word. Uh, Don't get me started about what happened in um, underserved communities. So anyway, all under the Republican administration who had this really tough on crime approach, which um, I don't know. What Didn't to say work. About that. Didn't work. But now it's time to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is Joliet, Illinois, a city located outside of Chicago and whose motto is the City of Champions due to the number of professional athletes and state high school championships that have come from Joliet. Lionel Richie was a Joliet High School tennis star no. who never made it to Wimbledon, but what? did manage to write a few little ditties such as All Night, All night Long, long. and Hello. Hello. <laughs> hey, jumble, jumble. Uh, so prior to European invasion, the area was inhabited by about a dozen tribes who spoke the Algonquin language and called themselves Iliniwik. At contact, these people may have numbered between ten to 15,000, but we don't know for sure. The first Europeans in the area were the French, and they called the native peoples that they encountered Illinois, I want to say, from the name Illinois or Illini people with the added French suffix wa, spelled O-I-S, like Francois. (laughs) (laughs) By the 1700s, the Illini people were nearly wiped out and the survivors had to move to Kansas and Oklahoma. The Peoria tribe of Oklahoma is made up of Eleni people. Yeah, and the genocide wasn't, it was violent, but uh, uh, the Europeans brought a lot of disease, um, yeah. which also yeah. really uh, impacted adversely the, their their population. So in 1800, Illinois became part of the Indiana <laughs> Territory. The territorial government
government enacted a black code that effectively barred enslaved people from gaining their freedom by permitting lengthy terms of, quote, indentured servitude, end quote, which bound workers to a particular person for a period of time in return for shelter and food. And state laws imposed a severe penalty on anyone aiding a fugitive slave. Illinois was admitted to the Union in 1818 as a free state. However, the Constitution allowed for limited slavery and allowed current slave owners to retain their slaves. The General Assembly also passed legislation that severely curtailed the rights of free Black people residing in the state and discouraged the migration of free Black people. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, um, first of all... uh, small culture corner um there were slave catchers it was a big business and there were black slave catchers and white slave catchers and even if you were in a free state you were at risk of being kidnapped and put into enslavement. Right. However, there were abolitionists in Illinois who participated in the Underground Railroad Network. And the Underground Railroad ran right through Joliet. I didn't know that. Its chief conductor in Joliet was Samuel Cushing, a.k.a. Deacon Cushing. A farmer named Moses Cook also helped. Joliet was incorporated in 1837 with the original name of Juliet. It lies on the Des Plaines River, about 40 miles southwest of downtown Chicago. It was once known as Stone City for its limestone, which was used throughout the Midwest for buildings and monuments. The city was also once the site of a large state prison, the Joliet Correction Center, in part because of the abundance of stone in the area. And another fun fact, the prison was featured in the movie The Blues Brothers and the TV show Prison Break. Yay! (laughs) On another note about the prison is that it was the site of a prison uprising in which the mostly black Black inmates were upset about transfers that the white warden and white staff were facilitating to dilute the control and solidarity among the black inmates and people labeled gang members. Several white guards were taken hostage, but none were killed, while one former gang member, Herbert Cadillac Catlett, had reformed and been cooperating with the administration to bring about positive change within the institution. He tried to reason with his fellow inmates and he was murdered. We don't know who murdered him. But Hmm. Warden Finkbeiner was standing in Catlett's blood as he spoke to the inmates and the hostage situation was resolved. Wow. So, yeah. Large-scale heavy manufacturing and a growing commercial sector joined agriculture as major employers of a rapidly growing population. In 1850, there were only 37 Black people living in Joliet, but many Black people from the South settled in Joliet during the Great Migration. Also called the Crossroads of Mid-America. That sounds so lovely. It (laughs) It was one of the destination cities along Route 66, which, get your kicks on a Route 66, (laughs) which started in Chicago and ended on the West Coast. Two major interstates intersect at Joliet's western edge. South of Joliet are several large lakes and rivers and are popular spots for campers, fishers, and boaters. In the early 1980s, the decline of industry had greatly affected the city, and it is now evolving into a commuter suburb of the Chicago metropolitan area. Joliet's economy is currently based on casino gambling on the river, tourism in nearby state recreation areas, with some manufacturing, shipping, and transportation. At the 2020 census, the city was the third largest in Illinois, with a population of approximately 150,000. It is approximately 45% white, 34% Latinx, 15% Black, and less than 1% Native American. So now let's get into the 
early life of Milton Johnson. Let's set the (laughs) stage. Context. Okay. (laughs) Milton Johnson was born on May 15th, 1950. His family lived in Millery, Alabama, in the Jim Crow South, and it was a town of less than a thousand. Mm. So very small. Yeah. Yeah. He was reportedly the middle child of three boys. A sister was also mentioned in one place, but I I couldn't verify that. So I, I actually don't know how many siblings he has. Oh, okay. Okay. When Milton was four, his parents divorced. And in 1956, his mother, Dolly, got married again. Um, And my understanding is Dolly was a nurse. Oh, okay. Did you see that? I didn't. Okay. Well, she may have been a nurse. Anyway, Milton's <laughs> stepfather worked for a traveling construction company. So the family moved around a lot. They lived in various places in Ohio, Illinois, and Maryland. But by 1962, they had settled in Joliet. The family lived on Joliet's east side, which is considered the quote-unquote bad part of town. Gee, I wonder why. Redlining much? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just takes one black person to make the whole zone red in the yeah. 50s. And even today. <laughs> yeah. It's it's just talk about a broken record. You yeah. know, we just yeah. keep telling these same stories over and yeah. over again. Yeah. And it's yeah. definitely, you know, my, my takes are probably a lot different than the sources that I consulted who were like, this was just a sick guy. But and when you look at the context of the time, I am not as puzzled as many. So Right, right. So all the moving around was hard on Milton. He didn't do well in school and was held back a grade. He struggled to make friends. Later, he was described as a loner, who some said was a school bully. But Dolly described her son as a mother's child who loved to stay around the house and bake cakes and cook and watch TV. And his stepfather, Sam Myers, said that Milton was a good child who was never a problem for him or Dolly. And we'll see that their love and support for him is everlasting. Yeah. Uh, he said Milton did everything that was asked of him, was a big help around the house, and never violent or a discipline problem. Milton dropped out of school in the ninth grade, and when he was 15, he was arrested for assault and battery on a woman, but the charges were dropped. In 1968, he joined the Job Corps program and learned welding. He worked in Detroit as a welder for a while, but by 1969, he was back in Joliet working at a steel plant. So he's 15. It's 1968. Welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Brought to you by (laughs) I Hate It Here Cereal. Now, it should be noted that 1968, or the mid-60s in general, was a time period marked by the the assassination of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy and Malcolm X. Right. Period before then, there was hope for Black Americans who had sat at lunch counters, marched, boycotted, endured terrible abuse. Yes. That finally, America would live up to his promise of liberty and justice for all. <laughs> and yeah. then after King's assassination, that all changed. And Black America changed, including Black American youth at the time who had dealt with violence, being forced to go to, to white schools where they had no support. They had to endure racial violence by teachers, parents, and other students. There were uprisings at the time, right after King was assassinated that April, in cities all across America that spring, including in Joliet. And in Joliet in particular, there was a warehouse and a downtown food mart that were destroyed by fires. Dozens of people were arrested and charged for curfew violations, arson, vandalism, and looting. In one case, the National Guard had to circle a municipal building in the city of Joliet when a group of 
200 black young people threatened to march and protest the arrest of a black teen who was, they believe, charged wrongly with an arson and a burglary. And the youth, the youth, how dare they? They were demanding outrageous things like better job opportunities yeah. and housing for the black community and the teaching of black history at schools. Oh, my God. Anyway, yeah. sound familiar? Yeah, kind of does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. this is when Milton was in high school, right? Right, so. right. His younger brother, Lewis, ended up becoming a prison guard at Statesville Correctional Center. His brother, James, moved to Gary, Indiana. As a young man, Milton reportedly began trolling isolated areas where couples like to park, areas known as lovers' lanes, in order to watch them. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule, history so interesting, it's criminal. All right, let's get into the timeline. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) On February 17th, 1970, at about 9 p.m., Penny Williams, 18 years old, and Lee Chandler drove in Penny's Chevrolet to Pilcher Park, located in Joliet, Illinois. The couple found an isolated back lane and parked. As they sat in the car, a black man pulled his car behind Penny's Chevy, blocking them in. He got out of his car, tapped on the window, and asked them a few questions. He asked for directions and how long they were going to be there. After the couple answered his questions, the man went back to his car and returned carrying a shotgun. Oh, wow. Uh, He got in the back seat and ordered Penny to get in the back with him and take off her clothes. He ordered Lee to lie down on the floor in the front and stare downward. The man hit Penny Williams in the face whenever she didn't answer his questions the way that he wanted her to, or if he didn't like the words she chose. He raped her and made her tell Lee what was happening to her as it was happening. Mm. Lee was terrified and crunched into a ball on the floor of the car. The man also tortured Penny with the car's cigarette lighter. She was burned on the chest, abdomen, and genitalia, then beaten again around the face so hard that her jaw was broken. The man then demanded that Lee get out of the car, not look at him, and stare at the ground. Lee complied, and the man got out too. The man then told Lee to get up and open the the driver's side door 
commenting that he was going to kill them both with one blast of the shotgun. Holy shit. Lee bolted and ran into the forest. He kept going until he came across a payphone where he called for help. When he returned with police, Penny Chevy was gone, but a 1963 Buick was found nearby. According to Penny, the man took her to another car, but then returned her to the Chevy. He then left for a few minutes, returned, and drove her in her car out of the park. On the way out, they met a police officer. The man told the police that he was taking her to the hospital, which he did. The police officers aiding Lee Chandler were notified of this incident, and they went to Silver Cross Hospital in Joliet, where Penny had been taken. I was just going to say, my understanding is the population in Joliet is, it's like a small town, I think, right, less it than is. 100,000 people. So it's a, it's a small town. So, you know, I, I would imagine that violence is not typical for officers right. to encounter on the road. Right. So yeah. ac- according to Johnson, he was driving his stepfather's 1963 Buick in Pilcher Park when he saw Penny standing by her car, moaning for help. He stopped his car, picked her up as she started to fall. Wow. And put her in his car. He went a short distance. The car broke down and he then took her back to her car, drove out of the park, met the police officers and continued on to the hospital. Johnson was arrested at the hospital. Quite a story, though. Yeah, it is <laughs> quite a story. And, uh, you know, it could it could have happened that way, except we'll it's, learn more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Penny had been told to keep her eyes shut and she did so. So her identification of Johnson was from his voice. According to Penny, the man who drove her to the hospital was the same man who assaulted her, based on her belief that the voices were the same. The physician who treated Penny at the emergency room said that she was semi-comatose and had been beaten so severely that her eyes were swollen shut. She was in such great pain that the physician was unable to conduct a complete examination. He observed teeth marks on her breasts and burns on her chest and abdomen. A police detective was quoted as saying that it was the worst beating that he'd ever seen. Johnson's blood and secretion were type A, Penny's were type O, and Lee's were type AB. This is an old school blood identification system because they didn't have DNA as a tool available to them back then. That makes me sad because DNA is my favorite, you know. <laughs> I know. So, type O blood stains, Penny's type, were found on Johnson's underwear. Seminal stains from a type A secretor, Johnson's type, were found on the backseat of the Chevy, along with pubic hair similar to that of Johnson. Also, a head hair similar to that of Penny's was found on Johnson's shorts, and a pubic hair similar to that of Penny's was found on his sock. There were no blood stains or secretions of the type AB, Lee Chandler's type, or hair samples found in any place from which it might be inferred that Lee Chandler was the assailant, a possibility considered by the investigators and put forward by Johnson. Near the crime scene, a shotgun was discovered leaning against a tree in an area where Penny's clothes had been strewn. The shotgun belonged to Johnson's stepfather, Sam Myers, and had been in the trunk of the Buick. Near the spot where the shotgun was found, there was a heel print which, when compared with the boot Johnson was wearing that night, was a match. Yeah, it's the shotgun that pulls uh, the room together. <laughs> really? Yeah. It really brings it all in. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> An oral pathologist, in comparing a cast of Johnson's teeth with a photograph of the teeth marks on Penny's breasts, expressed the opinion that it was highly probable that the teeth marks on the breasts were made by Johnson's. Now, this oral pathology is, my understanding, junk science. Junk science, yeah. But at the time, I think it's what they had to go off of. Right, right. I'll take it. (laughs) 
Johnson was convicted. The charge of rape carried a sentence of 25 to 35 years in prison, with a consecutive term of 5 to 10 years added on for burglary. He was sent to Pontiac Correctional Center. There, he worked in the kitchen, where he was considered a good worker who kept to himself, although he was described by prison counselors as somewhat manipulative. He Mm. continued to deny guilt and expressed the desire to become a gym teacher when he got out, which I think was a a pipe dream. Um, yeah. I don't think a school's gonna hire Well, maybe there's gym class in hell. Now, on (laughs) June 22nd, 1978, Pontiac Correctional Center had the worst riot in Illinois history, uh, worst prison riot in Illinois history, when prisoners set fire to multiple buildings and three prison officers were killed. Yeah, so he was there during that. Yeah, pretty nuts. Yeah. On March 10th, 1983, Johnson was released and went to live with his mother, Dolly, and stepfather, Sam. And uh, people at the time made a big deal, and they still do make a big deal about the fact that he was released a little bit early. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, he was going to be released eventually anyway, you know? Right, right. So, but um, yeah. my understanding, I'm just looking at my notes. He was up for parole a number of times. Yeah, before, before 1983. Yeah. yeah. And then and I then, think for like three years, mm-hmm. he, then, he kept trying to get parole and then he was finally paroled in 83. Yeah. Right. So Johnson always claimed that he had just been a good Samaritan who'd found the victim and took her to the hospital. And his family believed him. They thought he'd been railroaded. So this is what leads me to believe that something is off upstairs. So his brother, Louis, Louis or, or, or Louis, I think I want to say Louis because of Armstrong. OK, you say I, Louis. I could be wrong. You say Louis. I say a Louis. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you say tomato. I say tomatoes. <laughs> Tomato, tomatoes. <laughs> anyway, his brother Louis worried about Johnson because he wasn't working and appeared unmotivated to find a job. He isolated himself and expressed the fear that the police were after him, try to find something to pin on him to send him back to prison, which, by the way, is not uncommon or unheard yeah, yeah, this is all like, I, I would say, something that people in the Black community worry about. Are, are, are constantly. Yeah. Whether, yeah. You, you, whether you have a record or not. Or not. Yeah. <laughs> but what worried Louis the most was Johnson's comment that he, quote, would get the last laugh, unquote. Uh, yeah, what is I'm that concerned, mean? too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Johnson did have a girlfriend who he'd met in prison named Mary Jo Hillier. She worked at the prison as a dietary manager, and the two had met in the prison kitchen. After she moved to Milwaukee, they struck up a pen pal relationship. This then developed into something more after Johnson was released from prison. They carried on a long-distance relationship where he would go to Milwaukee to visit her, but more often she would come to Joliet to visit him. She had nothing but good things to say about him, describing him as loving and sensitive. On the morning of June 25, 1983, in Joliet Township, the home of Honora Lawman, 67, a retired grade school teacher, her house was found to be on fire. Honora lived next door to her sister, Zita Blum, 66, and the two spent a lot of time together. The back door to Zita's house had been kicked in, and Zita was nowhere to be found. Fire trucks arrived at 8.20 a.m., and the fire was contained to one back bedroom. Inside the bedroom were the burned bodies of Honora and Zita. They had both been beaten before being shot to death. Anra had also been stabbed. Their bodies had been placed in a sexual position, and one of the women had been violated with a turkey baster. Oh, jeez. 
Found at the scene were lube alloy bullets. Lube alloy, which is a contraction of lubricating alloy, is apparently a trademark name for a light copper alloy wash and wax coating that is used on lead bullets. Whoa. Okay. I I could have I would have sworn I if you didn't explain that, I would have sworn you made it up. Lube alloy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's the right pronunciation because um when I first read it it looked like lube alloy. So it might be lube alloy. I don't know. But I well, I'm thinking lube alloy because it's lubricating alloy. alloy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the following weekend on the evening of July first, nineteen eighty three, nineteen year old Terry Lynn Johnson, no relation, mother of two left her children in the care of her husband's nephew, telling him that she was going out with a girlfriend. When her husband Eric came home around midnight, Terry still had not come home. When she still had not returned by morning, he went out looking for her. They were planning on having a birthday party for their one-year-old little boy that day, and Mm -hmm. Eric knew she would not have missed her son's birthday party. Around 5 p.m., he filed a missing persons report. He didn't know who she'd gone with or where. At the same time, Lockport businessman Kenneth Chancellor, 34, had also gone missing. He was known as a womanizer, and he knew Terry. Kenneth's wife, Anna, attempted to page him multiple times on July 1st and 2nd. And although he was known to promptly respond to pages, he did not this time. Anna called friends, but nobody had seen him. She filed a missing persons report on July 2nd, and it was soon discovered that Kenneth's car had been towed. Anna and a friend went out to the area where the car had been found, a remote area in Orland Township known as a Lover's Lane. For two hours, Anna and her friend walked the area, then visited some local taverns. Nobody had seen Kenneth. The next day, July 3rd, they resumed their search, this time joined by Anna's brother and his girlfriend. Later, an off-duty police officer also joined the search party, and he and Anna's brother made the gruesome discovery of Kenneth Chandler's body. He was found lying on his back in some tall weeds, having been shot once in the chest, the bullet piercing his heart. But Terry Johnson was still missing. On July 4th, police started focusing their search on the area around where Kenneth's body had been found. At approximately 1 p.m., her body was found along a roadway in far southwest Cook County, about a quarter mile away from where Kenneth's body had been found. She had been beaten, shot, and stabbed. The bullet found in Kenneth's body was determined to have first gone through Terry's body, so they'd both been shot at the same time with the same bullet. A news article referred to it as the double death bullet. And it was also a lube alloy bullet. Wow. The following weekend, on July 9th, 1983, Ann Shoemaker, 19, was at a party at a farmhouse northeast of Joliet, when during the late evening hours, she and a girlfriend decided to take a walk. Anne had recently broken up with her boyfriend, and she wanted to talk. As the two young women were walking down the street, a dark pickup truck with a cabin enclosure over the flatbed passed them. Then it turned around at the corner and passed them again. <laughs> After several more such passes, the women became frightened and hid in some weeds before running back to the party. That would be terrifying. Yeah. After telling people at the party about what happened, Anne and her friend got into a car and went looking for the truck. A sort of cat and mouse game ensued where Anne and her friend followed the truck, then the truck followed them. During all this, Anne was able to take down the license plate number of the truck. Smart. Yeah, very smart. After Anne and her friend pulled into the driveway of a house where they knew three young men, and after telling the men what had happened, the truck drove by slowly 
then squealed its tires and took off. Mm. The three young men piled into a different car and followed Anne and her friend back to the party. On the way, they saw the truck pulled over to the side of the road under a streetlight with its hood up. The driver, who was standing near the passenger side of the truck, was a black man approximately 5 foot 9 inches in height and weighing approximately 200 pounds. On Friday night, July 15th, Richard Dewey Pollen, 32, met up with Kathy Norwood, 25, and the two went driving in a red Chevette. Around 3 a.m. on the 16th, two sheriff's deputies, Sergeant Dennis Foley, 50, and Deputy Stephen Mayer, 22, were on routine patrol when a man in the road gestured to them for help, and they stopped to assist. As they stepped out of the patrol car, they were cut down in a hail of bullets. Mayer was killed on the spot and Foley injured with a shot to the throat. Another car approached the scene. Several shots were fired at it. This is a crazy, crazy currency. Yeah. Oh my God. George Keel, 24, was killed, and his female passenger, Laura Troutman, 21, was wounded. The station wagon that they were riding in crashed into a bean field, and Laura jumped out and ran to a nearby farmhouse for help. This is another reason why I think he's not okay upstairs. What black person voluntarily kills two police officers? Yeah, yeah. and this Do is you just want to tie? Yeah. So Sergeant yeah. Foley at first played dead then got back into the police car and radioed for help. But his words were garbled and he was instructed to turn on his siren. Two eyewitnesses, men who had been walking down the road, saw a dark colored pickup truck with a cabin enclosure over the flatbed, zooming away from the scene. When officers arrived at the scene, they found three separate crime scenes. First, there was the red Chevette that Dewey Pollen and Kathy Norwood had been driving around. Dewey was found shot to death in the back seat, and Kathy was found outside of the car lying on the ground, also having been shot to death. Her purse was missing, as was Dewey's wallet. So this is his typical M.O., the first scene. Okay. So south of the Chevette was where the sheriff's deputies had been shot. There lay the bullet-ridden body of Deputy Mayor, his gun and wallet gone. Deputy Foley's gun and wallet were also missing. So this is where it gets nuts when the the police uh, show up Mm -hmm. and he's Mm -hmm. already killed these other people. So I guess he feels like he has to kill them too. I guess. I guess. Um, Yeah. uh, I'm speaking. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) The third crime scene was where the station wagon had crashed into the field. So these people were just driving by. What the fuck? Right. Yeah. Right. Completely unrelated, innocent. Just driving by. Yeah. And he feels like he has to shoot them. I don't know. Yeah. So George Keel's body was found in the driver's seat. At the first two crime scenes were found shoe prints made by a gym shoe with a diamond-shaped pattern. Underneath Deputy Mayor's body was a receipt for the repair of a fishing reel, bearing the name and address of Johnson's stepfather, Sam Myers. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> on on the same day of the multiple murder, Saturday, July 16th, Anthony Hackett, 18, and his girlfriend Patricia Payne went to Great America Amusement Park in Gurney, Illinois, which is north of Chicago. At the park, Anthony bought a Tasmanian devil stuffed animal and placed the receipt in his wallet. If these little details that really break your heart, yeah, they yeah. were kids. They were yeah. children. Yeah, yeah, just going out to have a good time. Yeah. Anthony and Patricia were from Emden, a little village located approximately halfway between Bloomington and Springfield. At about 10 p.m., the couple left Great America and started the drive home. 
It's about a three-hour drive from Gurney to Emden. But it was going to take even longer than that because the pair took a wrong turn and found themselves in Chicago. Whoops. After figuring out, yeah, um, no no GPS in these days. No. Nope. After figuring out which way to go, the couple drove for another 45 minutes south on Interstate 55 before they pulled off onto the shoulder to take a nap. And it was... Was it the middle of the day or was it? No, it was in the, the middle okay. of the night. Yeah, okay. it was like okay. one one thirty in the morning. Okay, okay. So they pulled over to the shoulder to take a nap. Anthony slept in the front seat and Patricia slept in the back. At around 1.30 a.m. on July 17th, Patricia awoke to a tapping sound on the passenger side window, followed by gunshots and the sound of breaking glass. Anthony had been shot and killed. The assailant then whipped open the passenger side door and demanded that Patricia give him Anthony's wallet and her purse. He then ordered her to get out of the car and crawl on her belly to a pickup truck parked nearby. When Patricia reached the truck, the man told her to get inside, stay on the floor, and keep her eyes closed. However, she did take glances at the man's face. Once the truck started moving, the man directed Patricia to sit on the seat. He then sexually assaulted her. After 10 minutes, he ordered, then forced her to perform oral sex. He then pulled off the interstate, stopped the truck, and raped her. During the rape, Patricia's assailant taunted her, asking her why she was crying. He then resumed driving. It was about 4.30 a.m. Poor thing. A short time later, he again pulled off the highway and stopped the truck. There, the man gagged and blindfolded Patricia before once again starting to drive. After about 10 minutes, he pulled off onto the shoulder of the highway outside of Joliet and stabbed Patricia in the chest. Mm. As she lost consciousness, he dumped her from the truck. Wow. About an hour later, Patricia was found on the grassy median by a passing motorist, and she was rushed to a Joliet hospital. When she arrived, she had no pulse or blood pressure. Oh, my God. Miraculously, she was resuscitated, and she survived. Wow. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Patricia. So, <laughs> described her assailant as a black man, who she believed was in his mid-20s, about six feet tall, medium to heavy build with a pot belly, no facial hair, and a strong body odor. Patricia stated that she would be able to recognize her assailant by his low, growly voice and strong body odor. Oof. Bullets recovered from the crime scene and from Anthony Hackett's body were identified as 357 Magnum lube alloy bullets. An autopsy revealed that Anthony had been shot five times. Reddish brown fibers were found on the floor of Anthony's car on the shoulder of the interstate near the front passenger door and in the grassy area where Patricia was found by the motorist. Eight days later, Patricia looked through approximately 1,500 mugshots and picked out 42 of them with facial similarities to her attacker, though it's unclear if Johnson's was among those photos. Sam Myers, Johnson's stepfather, was questioned by the Will County Sheriff's Department about the receipt found under Deputy Mayor's body. Sam thought that the receipt might have blown out of the cab of his truck, a dark-colored pickup truck with a cab enclosure, by the way, when he drove to a fishing area near the site. He was cleared as a suspect because at the time of the killings, he had been in Mississippi, and he'd gone there with his wife, and they went and visited family, so he was definitely in Mississippi. Okay. So the violent and brutal murders terrorized Joliet and surrounding communities, but it wasn't over. The violence escalated a month later when on August 20th, 1983, four women were murdered in the Greenware by Mary ceramic shop located in Joliet, Illinois. What? 
Yeah. The victims were Marilyn Bears, 45, Barbara Dunbar, 38, Anna Ryan, 75, and Anna's daughter-in-law, Pamela Ryan, 29. Three of the victims sustained multiple stab wounds, which caused their death. Anna Ryan was both stabbed and shot to death. The four women together were stabbed a total of 43 times. Oh, my God. So that's over 10 times each. Jesus. Yeah. Pamela Ryan, Anna Ryan, and Barbara Dunbar had driven to the ceramic shop in a 1977 Chevy Blazer belonging to Pamela Ryan and her husband. The Blazer was discovered later that afternoon at a nearby car wash. Two fingerprints were found on the vehicle, one on the door handle and the other from a blood stain on the gear shift. Photographs were taken of footprint impressions discovered at the scene of the murders and in the area where the blazer was parked at the car wash. The footprints were made by a gym shoe with a diamond-shaped pattern, size 10 or 11. There it is again. Yep. So bullet fragments from the scene of the murders had a lube alloy coating. Three of the victims' purses, which contained virtually no money, were discovered in a creek located about three-tenths of a mile from Jim's Pool Hall in Joliet. In August of 1983, Ann Shoemaker called the Will County Sheriff's Office and told them about the incident with the truck. If you recall, that was when she and her friend had been walking at night and a truck kept driving by. Right, right. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. So let's get into the investigation and the arrest. Uh, in September, the police officers went to Sam Meyer's house again to ask more questions. There they ran into Milton Johnson. When questioned, he denied knowing anything about the murders, except for what he had seen in the news. Johnson also sported a goatee, and Patricia Payne had described her assailant as having no facial hair. Remember? Yeah. Yep, I do. Afterwards, Sam took his pickup truck to a friend's house and stashed it in his garage, ostensibly because he wanted his friend to do some body work on it, but more probably because he thought the police were trying to pin some crimes on his stepson, who he thought was innocent. Mm -hmm. The truck stayed in the garage of the friend's house for the next six months, and strangely enough, during the same time period, the murders stopped. Whoa, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, very so, interesting. <laughs> and Shoemaker's information was not followed up on until February of 1984. When she was contacted about what happened, she turned over the license plate number, which she'd been carrying around on a scrap of paper in her purse for six 
months. Wow. So you must have had a feeling it was it was it was important. Right. Yeah. Right. And um, look at this messy ass hoedness yeah. waiting so long to follow yeah. up on it. And on March 6, 1984, police traced the license plate number back to the truck owned by Sam Myers. Police learned about the location of Sam's truck and had it towed to the police headquarters and searched. In the truck, they found Caucasian head hair similar to Patricia Payne's bloodstains, a steak knife, reddish brown fibers, and a sales receipt for a Tasmanian devil stuffed doll. So got him. Yep. Based on these items, the police obtained a search warrant to the Myers Johnson residence. In the house, they found three 357 Magnum caliber shells with a lube alloy coating and Converse All Star gym shoes with a diamond pattern on the soles that matched the prints at the crime scene of both the ambush style murders involving the sheriff's deputies and the ceramic shop murders. Police learned that in the afternoon after the ceramic shop murders, Johnson was seen gambling at Jim's pool hall and was seen with approximately $500 in cash. If you recall, the victim's purses were found near the pool hall, emptied of money. Wow. Okay. After looking at five mugshots, Patricia tentatively identified Johnson as her assailant, saying that she could be more certain in her identification if she heard the individual's voice. On March 9th, Patricia viewed a six-person lineup in which the suspects spoke. After each person in the lineup repeated commands that the assailant had given Patricia on the night of her ordeal, such as get on the ground and crawl on your belly to the truck, stay on the floor, and keep your eyes closed, Patricia identified Johnson as her assailant. When asked if she wanted to smell their body odors, she Ooh, said there was gross. no need to do so because, <laughs> well, I guess the, now they want to be thorough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so there was no need to do so because she had no doubt that the man she picked out was her assailant. Johnson was arrested for Anthony Hackett's murder. So now it's time to drive into the trial. What do you got for us, Beth? Because of extensive pretrial publicity, the trial was moved to the Iroquois County town of Watsika. Patricia Payne testified against Johnson at trial. Key evidence in the case was the receipt for the Tasmanian Devil doll bought by Anthony Hackett at Great America, which had been found in the pickup truck. Johnson was convicted of first-degree murder of Anthony Hackett, as well as the aggravated kidnapping, deviant sexual assault, rape, and attempted murder of Patricia Payne. He was sentenced to death and to concurrent terms of 40 years imprisonment for deviant sexual assault, rape, and attempted murder. And I believe that his parents paid for a private lawyer. Yes, they did. They did. Yeah. Six days after Johnson was convicted, he was indicted for the murders of Marilyn Bears, Barbara Dunbar, Anna Ryan, and Pamela Ryan, the women killed in the ceramics shop. Key evidence in that case were the bloody fingerprints that were found on the blazer, which had turned out to be Johnson's. Stating that the attorneys were attempting to, quote, convict me more than the state is right now, unquote. What's that mean? And after a lot of back and forth, Johnson elected to defend himself during the second trial. During the trial, assistant Will County State's attorney Stephen White called Johnson a quote unquote animal, kind of racist, but yeah. also kind of accurate. I mean, yeah. <laughs> whoa, yeah. the brutality on this one. Uh, Ed Bermilla Jr., a state's attorney who helped prosecute both cases, called him a quote, stone cold killing machine, unquote. 
Johnson was convicted and sentenced to death on January 28, 1986. He is still considered the prime suspect in nine other murders. Bermila said that ballistics evidence and Johnson's method of operation were good enough to link him to the other murders, but not enough to develop a strong case against him. And also, you know, he'd been convicted of five murders and he has two death sentences. So what's mm-hmm. what's the point? Yeah, but it's so interesting to me, especially especially in an area like Chicago or the Midwest, that they didn't pop him for those police officer murders. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're right about that. Yeah, what? that is what? that is very interesting. Not, that... not the America I know. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, where are they now? Well, Johnson is currently being housed at Menard Correctional Center in Chester, Illinois. He claims he is innocent in January. Of course 2003. He does. Yes, he does. Boy, oh boy. In January 2003, the governor of Illinois, George Ryan, commuted the death sentence of 167 inmates, one of whom was Milton Johnson. Johnson is now 72 years old. So now we're going to get into our takes and what we think made him snap. What are your thoughts, Beth? I'm so curious. So his family moved around a lot and he had trouble adjusting. It seems like his siblings did not or they adjusted better anyway. But um, maybe he had a different temperament than they did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was shyer. I don't know. But obviously he was angry about his lot in life. I mean, he was really angry. (laughs) Yes, he was. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, why he did the things he did, why he um, wanted to watch couples at lover's lanes and then wanted to kill them and uh, why he chose women in particular to take his anger out on. uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I guess the same reason many men take their anger out on women. Mm -hmm. Um, They're vulnerable, you know, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're easier targets. Than men for men, are. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of an effect prison had on him. Yeah. He was already, obviously, he was already capable of committing horrific crimes before he even right. went to prison. Yep. Uh, the torture rape of Penny is some of the worst shit I have ever heard. Oh, my it's God. Horrific. Capital yeah. D disturbed. Yeah. Yes. And uh, from what I understand, it, it changed Penny's life forever. Yeah. She attempted to unalive herself at one point and yeah, she, she did not have an easy time of it. Well, Um, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that it could have been an easy time, but fuck Milton Johnson for doing that to her. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Seriously. Um, And I I think he clearly had a sadistic side from Mm -hmm. that crime alone. Yeah. And I recall watching the TV show most evil, uh-huh. Where they use a scale of evil. Did you ever watch that one with no. Michael, Michael Stone? I think is the guy's name. He's like okay. a psychiatrist or psychologist. Anyway, he developed a scale of evil, uh-huh. and he'll go through the story and then put the the perpetrator on this scale based mm-hmm. on different things. And one of them is how sadistic they are, and the oh. people rated the most evil all had sadistic elements. So. Okay. Well, Mr. Johnson, probably off the chart. You're (laughs) evil. Yeah. (laughs) I I had uh, many thoughts. Um, His family moving around a lot. So there's instability in his home. Despite his parents, sounds like they were really loving of him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the instability of moving around, yeah, um, it's tough. Cuff, 
Cuff, we did coupled, we did that too. Yeah. Right. Yes. But coupled with the instability of the nation at the right, time. Right. There was a lot to be angry about. Yeah. Um, and what we know about crimes of sexual violence is that they can be about power. Yeah. And I imagine how powerless a little black boy being shuffled around from place to place must have felt in a nation that hated him. Yeah. Um, and his crimes were particularly sadistic and brutal. Even before he went to right, prison, like right? Said, and they didn't. It didn't seem like it. They got worse. Prison definitely <laughs> did just... help. You know what? That's my <laughs> professional opinion. So <laughs> I also thought about how protective his parents were of him. And rape is a, It's not uncommon for black men since the since we were brought to these shores to be accused of rape. Oh um, yeah. Falsely, for sure. Right. Yeah. And so I understand his parents wanting to yeah. protect him and believing and wanting him, to believe him. Yeah. Even though it wasn't true. He did do these bad things. Yeah. Um, but I can see why they they want they wanted they to protect want him. to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. And also he, he killed two police officers. No black man in his right mind would do something <laughs> so insane, which tells me that he's not all right upstairs. Uh <laughs> And last, last, rest in power to all the victims. Shout yeah. out to the victim who wrote down the license plate number, the one who yeah. identified him in the lineup. Big ups to all of them for reals. Yeah. Um, and that's like God. So now it's time to talk about how not to get murdered. So <laughs> if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Just one quick online safety tip. Get a password manager. Um, oh, it's a pain idea. in the ass in the beginning, but it will keep stuff that we do online safe. So it protects you from stock stalkers, you know, let's say yeah. your Instagram gets hacked or some, something crazy. It's just yeah. a way to protect yourself. Actually, That's I was like, listening to, um, what is that? Pretend. Pretend. Me yes. Too. That's why I got yeah. it from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was asking the lady, because the lady's being stalked, right? Yeah. And he was asking her if she used the same password for everything. He's like, well, that's how he got in. Uh, hello. That's how you got <laughs> yeah. hacked by the stalker. Yeah. Well, yeah. do it before it's too late. Yeah. And we welcome you, the listener, to share how you stay not getting murdered. <laughs> Amen. Now it's shout out time where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color, or any marginalized folks or any true crime goodies. Black. Panther 2, it's actually called Wakanda Forever, is streaming on Disney+. Plus. Uh, and if you saw the Rihanna concert that was interrupted rudely by a football game, you <laughs> probably noticed Justina Miles, the black ASL translator who's yeah. gone viral. And wow. I've been practicing, bitch better have my money. I'm working on the sign. <laughs> anyway, BASL or Black American Sign Language is different than ASL. Oh, and the wow. history of it all is fascinating and rich. Um, and I want to shout out Nakia Smith on TikTok. She is a Black, I think, fifth generation deaf person. Um, she has many people in her family and her ancestors who are deaf, who um, she teaches Black American Sign Language on, on wow. TikTok. And uh, it's really funny because she says, basically, BASL has a little more seasoning than regular <laughs> ASL. <laughs> 
So follow Nikita Smith on TikTok so we can all be better allies. Yeah, what do you got? Um, Well, I just have one uh, recommendation because I haven't been able to consume much content this week. So I just have one. Okay. It's called Operation Morning Light Podcast. And Mm -hmm. it tells the story of Cosmos 954, a nuclear-powered Soviet espionage satellite that malfunctioned and then fell to Earth in 1978. Oh, no! And as the satellite disintegrated, it scattered radioactive debris across the traditional lands of the Dene, Matisse, and Inuit in the Northwest Territories of Canada. Operation Morning Light tells the story of the Cosmos 954 disaster, its impact on the land, and the resilience of the communities in the debris field. Oh, my gosh. That sounds fascinating. Subscribed. (laughs) All right. So just to recap, that's Wakanda Forever on Disney+. Plus. Follow Nakia Smith on TikTok, a Black ASL instructor, and Operation Morning Light podcast wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) we're here god damn it all right well it's been fun beth but until next time where can the people find us our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruit loops pod for all of our social media the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website plus check it out for the different ways that you can support the show (laughs) and become a fruit loops patron you can also support us by supporting our sponsors or by giving us a five-star review Correct. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you, would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.